welcome everyone to a new season of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers and one of the tutors at University College Utrecht. And I'm here today with Gaetano Fjorin, who is also a tutor and he's a lecturer in linguistics. Uh, welcome, Gaetano. Thank you so welcome, much. Welcome, Kim. Welcome. And thank you very much for this. It's a great initiative and I'm very, very happy to be, to be part of it today. Thank you. Well, it's good to see you again as well, because, of course, uh, with everything that's going on, none of us are seeing each other as often as we as we'd like. Yeah, very true. Very true. And the same here. Very happy to see you as well. <laughs> so the interview itself, I mean, I want to sort of uh, talk about your work as a researcher, your work as a teacher yeah. and you as a person, because for yes. alert, I did discover a couple of really nice things about you. So oh, OK, talk about that. All right. <laughs> so you're uh, doing research on linguistics, but yes. how did you end up in linguistics? Oh, uh, how I, I, did I end up in linguistics? Almost by accident. And uh, um, uh, I think I will try to make the story sh as short as possible, but uh, 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 there's a couple of elements uh, that are interesting because it's very interconnected with uh, the city of Utrecht and the University of Utrecht. And the story went that at the time I was studying uh, um, uh, literature and philosophy at my own university in the city of Verona. And uh, I really wanted to go for an Erasmus exchange and uh, I applied for an ex Erasmus exchange in Sweden. Um, uh, it was um, something in, uh, in uh, uh, modern literature. And uh, unfortunately, however, uh, since uh, uh, at that point, uh, um, uh, that very year, they decided that uh, the same exchange would be assigned to a different faculty than ours. So I was out of the, of the exchange destination. And the second option was the University of Utrecht. Uh -huh. So I said, okay, right, I will go to Utrecht uh, as long as, you know, they send me somewhere because they really wanted to go. And, uh, um, and another student told me, you know, if you go to Utrecht, you should really take um, a, a course in linguistics because linguistics, as they teach it here in Verona, is a very, very difficult class. So do it there because I'm told it's much easier. <laughs> uh, and then I followed the advice and when I was choosing for classes, for the classes available, I said I will take this course in linguistics. Uh, that was taught at the time by an Italian professor, in fact, who was also responsible for the exchange program um, uh, called Dennis Desfitto. And, uh, and I took the class with him. I took another class in linguistics and from day one, uh, I just loved it immediately. It was really, for me, linguistics was truly uh, love at first sight, especially theoretical linguistics. It was very difficult, extremely difficult. So I remember spending very long nights uh, at the Central University Library, which mm -hmm. now has been refurbished and it's very beautiful. At the time, it was still under, in, uh, in, in, in many parts were still in construction. Uh, and uh, and it was uh, it was all structured in in, a, in this strange puzzled way, which I still um, I remember very fondly. And I remember spending very long night there trying to read these these complicated papers, trying to figure them out. And uh, and I still remember really the excitement and the fascination with with these ideas. And then uh, what happened is that uh, uh, Dennis became my thesis supervisor for my master, and then. Uh, my uh, supervisor for my PhD thesis, uh, and uh, I came back for to Utrecht uh, uh, for the PhD, and uh, and that's it. And then uh, you know uh, I ended up at UCU teaching linguistics, uh, and, uh, and that's how it happened. Okay, 
And because you fell in love at first sight with linguistics and, and what about linguistics clicks with you? Uh, yeah, so, well, uh, first of all, uh, linguistics is, especially these days, uh, and even in the in the relatively short span of time since when I started studying, has expanded. It has become a very, very broad field. Uh, it encompasses many different things. For me, the, the very first click was about uh, the, the more theoretical syntactic aspects of language. And uh, what really clicked for me was that uh, it was a completely, it was at once, um, a perspective that I've always had known somehow uh, implicitly, but which I found for the first time to be explicitly formulated. And at the same time, it was really, it really represented a, a very radical change of perspective towards the way I was used to look at language at the same time. So it was at once, it was affirming an intuition, but it was also an intuition that was really, you know, down there, very much hidden behind a lot of preconceptions that were, that I found out then were not correct at all. So, or, or not the right way to look at things. So that definitely was the thing. It's a type of click and cessation that I've shared and found with other linguists who had a very similar experience. It's yeah. really about, you know, at some point it just clicks and you get it. And then, of course, you have to study a lot to learn all the details and how to implement these ideas. But it's really about, you know, getting that first intuition in yeah. Uh, uh, in a click. And then, of course, uh, I learned many other things uh, in the years to come, uh, and, uh, and I expanded uh, 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 these intuitions. Uh, but, uh, but it all started there, for sure, with these. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's very similar to, because, um, yeah, as tutors, we're obviously trying to advise students about which classes to take, what would be a good fit for them, what they would like. And I remember having a conversation with a tutee in my first year as a tutor and about, she was doing sociology. It was basically like, why sociology? And she said something very similar that it was just, she said, it's just the way I look at the world. Like I got into that subject and it's like, yeah, this is how I think. Mm -hmm. So there was that click indeed, like, okay, I'm looking at the world in the same way, but at the same time, then it was taken a look, few steps further and that makes you it opens up your mind in a way and it, it changes yes. the way you view things. But at the same time, there is just a match somehow in the way that you think and argue and reason. That's absolutely true. And I can definitely relate to that, uh, to that uh, type of feeling for, for linguistics uh, and for many related things. And I also think, you know, that different disciplines uh, uh, might actually entail different learning approaches and different types of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, understanding, uh, I don't know, a very complex historical phenomena can require a different type of learning process than, you know, getting a formula right in, uh, in say, mm -hmm. mathematics. Uh, and, and, and it's very fascinating how different people, different, uh, you know, all of us can relate in, in different ways to all of these. And I like seeing it at the college as well, because I think one of the things I've realized over the years is a lot of people think that it's the topic that decides what you're going to study and what will be a good match. But, you know, a topic, if you're talking about how do people interact with each other, it could be psychology, it could be mm -hmm. anthropology, it could be economics could be linguistics. Um, so it's not so much yeah. a topic, but it really is that learning style yeah. that you're 
describing indeed. I, I agree very much with you, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. It has to do, in fact, I mean, and in effect, some of the distinctions we draw between, uh, between uh, disciplines sometimes have not really to do with the topic, but much more either with the methodology or, you know, with more formal aspects rather than contentful aspects. I mean, there's much more overlapping content uh, than, uh, than perhaps uh, we, are, we are prone to think when we think about this uh, distinction between disciplines. And maybe there's more of a, of a difference in terms of the methods that are used, uh, yeah. the type of information that is given the most attention. So, no, absolutely true. And uh, you just published a book as well. I did, and, yes. And the book is about how we make meaning. Yes, about yes. What meaning is, uh, about how language conveys meaning and how humans understand and make meaning a part of their social and cognitive life, lives. Yes. Um, I have to admit, I was really confused by that description because I'm an economist <laughs> and I'm usually not working with such abstract ideas or mm -hmm. maybe abstract in a different way. Yes. You say it. So could you explain a little bit about the book? What is the... Yes, yes, yes. It's, um, um, uh, well, it's a, it's a lot of... Uh, the book is by and large an exploration of some existing ideas. And then in the end, it's also, it tries to come up with, with sort of a proposal to fix some... Uh, to, to address some of the questions that are out there on the topic. And uh, um, uh, as you said, the topic is, uh, the, topic is uh, uh, the notion of meaning. So uh, um, we can use the example of what we are doing right now at this very moment. I'm making sounds uh, with my mouth uh, and these sounds, you know, hit the microphone and uh, they reach you, um, they reach the recorder and, uh, you know, they are transmitted to, in the future, they will be transmitted to other listeners. Uh, and uh, and uh, one intuition that we have uh, as, uh, as, uh, as human beings, uh, cognitive agents and speakers uh, of, and users of these, uh, of these sounds uh, that we call language is that there is a distinction between the sounds themselves uh, and what they mean. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, you know, can be proved in many different ways. Uh, by and large, the properties that you can use to describe the signal, the sound in itself, are of a very different nature than the ones, uh, you know, of the contents that are expressed, the meanings that are expressed when we use these sounds. And also um, another very important element uh, uh, that, uh, you know, now my linguistic student would say, oh, no, Gaetano, not again. Uh, uh, these are, you know, some of the, the the, the notions that we insist a lot, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of very important notion is that there is a lot of arbitrariness in the relation between the two. To put it very simple, um, I don't know, the names that we give to many objects are completely, stand in a completely arbitrary relation with the meaning. The, the reason we, uh, to use Shakespeare, the reason we call the rose a rose, you know, it's nothing to do with the rose and so on. So the question is, uh, if we accept this intuition, which, by the way, is already a, an interesting question, do we really accept this distinction between um, um, the, the, the material form of the language and the meaning it conveys? But if we do, we are left with the question, well, what is this thing that we distinguish from the language and we want to call meaning? And, yeah. you know, can we place it in the natural world? Is it something that we can study legitimately? Uh, is it something just too abstract to go about any, you know, asking any, any significant question? Uh, these are really natural, uh, let's say, scientific questions that one can ask uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, in the context in which uh, you know you have an intuition that there is a specific type of object so with specific type of properties so and the book is very much about that what can we tell at this point about this thing that we call meaning and the book has three takes three perspectives together in uh, in approaching the question and w- the first one is uh, more exquisitely uh, linguist, uh, linguistic, in the sense that um, uh, linguists, especially in the past decades, uh, have worked very hard to, you know, find out uh, what language can tell us about meaning. Mm-hmm. And one thing we know, and for which we have some very sophisticated theories these days, is that uh, the form of meaning is one of the determiner factor of the meaning that is conveyed. Um, we see this especially when we look at the grammar of languages. These these very complex uh, uh, rules uh, and constraints that determine the way we combine words uh, in language do have an impact uh, on the meaning that we convey through those expressions. So if you take a very, very simple sentence such as uh, 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 John loves Mary, for example, uh, and you compare it with uh, the other simple sentence, Mary loves John, Uh, What you find is very, very simple yet significant evidence that the very same words organized in different grammatical ways in these two sentences in different orders convey different meanings in fact. And linguists have developed a lot of of work to show how the mapping between the grammar and the meaning of a language works. So that is one perspective. Another perspective is is the one that has developed, especially in the philosophy of language of the last century, which is a question of how um, the language we use relate, and especially the fact that it conveys meaning related to the material world in which we live. One of the acts that we do, and and this is a a dimension that is in itself two dimension. Uh, On the one hand, uh, one of the things we can do by using language is to talk about the world around us, to refer to it, to point at it, to say things about it. This is what we do in the natural sciences, for example. We try to describe the material reality. Um, The other thing is that, uh, that also has to do with the material context, is that the language is an important social element. It's something that uh, determines a a very significant part of our social lives. So this perspective has more to do with the external aspect of language and meaning, how it relates uh, to the external reality. And finally, the third perspective has to do with the cognitive dimension. Um, Language clearly relates and finds its meaningfulness also through the relation that it has to our cognitive lives, the way we think about things, the beliefs we have, and not only it relates to that, it gives us a chance to talk about that, the fact that we have predicates such as believe, expect, think, uh, you know, uh, uh, imagine, and so on, are all signs that we can talk about not only the material world or the social world around us, but also our cognitive lives, and very interestingly, the lives of others. I can, you know, I can attribute beliefs and thoughts to other people, and language allows me to do that. All natural languages have expressions of this sort. So the book tries to, you know, look at these three dimensions and say, um, 
how they relate to one another, I mean, if there is a way to find a common framework. So that's the main question. The answer it provides, the tentative answer it provides is that um, uh, language and especially language in its meaningfulness might be regarded on a parallel with the way uh, our perceptual system works. Um, that is uh, as a uh, as, um, uh, um, uh, the domain of cognition that helps us interface with our environment, with our natural ecology somehow. And he tries to develop a parallel by showing that there are a lot of similarities between language and perception, especially if you look at what we know um, about uh, perception uh, and what we have learned from the neurocognition of this, uh, of this domain, especially in the last century, which was a century of great developments in the understanding of uh, uh, how, we, how perception works. Yeah. And because um, you describe as well that all these ideas indeed about how meaning, how we make them and how they're related to perception, they of course link very closely to a lot of the big social discussions right now about truth. Yes, yes. Um, or alternative facts, as I believe someone mm. in the Trump administration called <laughs> at some point. Very true, um, yes. Where do you see the link there? How would you... The link, there is a the link there is a, is very rich and complex, and uh, and uh, and um, and it's very important, of course. And what you mentioned, it's it's definitely one of the central issues uh, in the whole uh, in the whole problem. The notion of truth has been fundamental to any approach to meaning uh, that I know of, uh, either in proving it that it is central or in disproving it and showing that, you know, we should get rid of it. But it has always been in the mouth and at the center of any discussion, either positively or negatively, in fact. Um, the, the notion of truth is, uh, is fundamental to any logical approach to language in the sense that, especially if you take the meaningfulness of language to reside in its capacity, uh, to refer to things, uh, the notion of truth uh, comes up uh, as, uh, as simply a byproduct of this idea of correspondence. Yeah. The idea, uh, this is a, a very traditional way of looking at meaning. The idea is that um, the meaning of an expression, that when we, 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 we produce a proposition in language, what we say, we provide a description of a state of affair, which is true or false, depending on whether it matches an external reality, which means a reality that is external to the language itself. Yeah. Uh, it's an idea that has to do with the fact that language is not a self-contained system, but must be always evaluated with respect to something else. So yeah, if I say... It's not creating. It's exactly, exactly. It's describing something that is uh, absolutely it's describing something that is independent of yeah. it. Um, so uh, to give you an example, if I say, uh, you know, the, 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 if I uh, pronounce the mathematical formula that two plus two makes five, I'm using language in the most appropriate form. It is a perfectly grammatical you know, construction of the language of mathematics, but it has one problem. It's false. It's, yeah. it's, not, uh, it's not true. It's not meaningful. In, uh, the problem has to do with the meaning, not with, uh, with the symbols or with the language itself. Uh, 
So, and this, of course, entails a notion of truth. To know the meaning of a sentence means to know it's the conditions that make it true, basically. Uh, it means uh, to know what to look out there in the world, if at all possible, um, uh, uh, to tell whether the sentence or the expression is true or false of what it is meant to represent. Um, the, this raises a, a whole bunch of very complicated questions, uh, practical and philosophical and all of, so, of all sorts. And uh, one of the questions is, uh, all right, but what is this reality we must compare languages? Is it the material world? Is it what we think about it, for example? Is it the cognitive construct? I mean, is it reality as we have it through the filter of our cognition? Is it uh, just the product of, uh, of uh, cognition itself? or is it the material world out there, as, for example, we like to try to do uh, and achieve, for example, in the natural sciences. Um, so, of course, and of course, the answer you give to this question is going to have very powerful implication on, uh, on your notion of, uh, of truth. One of the ideas, uh, so there are many ways, and you know, I don't have the solution to, <laughs> to any of these very difficult questions, uh, uh, if not uh, a bit of the capacity to formulate them. But one of the suggestions that, uh, that I try to uh, uh, put forward uh, um, uh, with my uh, uh, co-writer, Dennis, in the book is that, oh my God, the, the I can pause the recording. That's okay. Yes, I'm so sorry. No, I'm no so worries. Sorry, Kim. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome back. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> sorry again for the interruption. Um, um, uh, uh, what were we saying? Um, yes. So uh, the, the 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 way we think about the relation between language and the, the whatever it is the domain against which we evaluate it, it's going to have very powerful implication for the notion of truth. So what is it to use language truthfully? Yeah. Um, um, this is a question that can be approached in many different ways and definitely not a, an easy one to approach in definite in definitive terms but one suggestion I've, I'm, I'm, I'm making in the in the, in the in the book is that part of the solution um, uh, um, might come my my uh, um, uh, might be developed from from uh, uh, very pragmatic considerations of uh, of uh, how effectively um, as actual cognitive agents uh, we end up using language uh, uh, and the way you know language function in uh, in the practice of use, especially in the way it connects to uh, uh, its contextual conditions. Um, in part, you know my my. My understanding is that um, um, language is a very powerful cognitive instrument. And uh, part of the answer to the question does not resign in any scientific study of what language is, uh, but resides, in fact, in the choices that we decide to make with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the actions we decide to perform with it. Uh, one uh, lesson that I learned through, and I have to say, especially through UCU, and maybe, you know, I can tell you uh, later a bit of background story on this, uh, is that language is, among many other things, uh, an action that we perform. In different ways and in different contexts, mm -hmm. but um, um, uh, 
It is definitely also something that exists because we use it, because we yeah. use it either as a private and cognitive system of that helps us understand the world around us or as, a, as, a, as an instrument to communicate and share. Uh, publicly, in fact, as we, me and you are doing right now, mm -hmm. uh, our ideas and our thoughts uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, what we think about the world around us. So uh, truth is not only, let's say, to, 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 to sum up the idea, uh, uh, truth is not uh, simply a property of language, but it's a possibility of language in the sense that language can be used in order, definitely one of the capacities of language, to be used to describe the world truthfully, but doing that, it's a choice that we have to make willingly. And of course, there are many other uses of language. We can use language, you know, to say false things. We can use language to, you know, make claims that are not, uh, uh, that do not correspond to any fact and that doesn't you know doesn't it's not that our brain explodes or you know uh, the language doesn't work or becomes uninterpretable it is perfectly usable and interpretable but it says something about the choices that we make so yeah. Possibly the solution to that problem requires us to understand not only the language we use and who we are, but also the goals that we have in mind when, when we use language in, say, especially particular settings such as the political arena or, you know, uh, uh, settings that have a, a more powerful and a more important social value. Okay. And is there anything in particular at UCU that made you see that? Because you mentioned... Yes, absolutely. So the, the story is very simple that, uh, you know, for me, my, my progress in linguistics uh, as Ed, uh, was, was very much determined uh, after that very first, uh, you know, uh, uh, click and, and, uh, and, uh, and love at first sight, was uh, definitely determined also by a couple of encounters with ideas that were very different from the ones uh, I had been exposed to previously. The first one uh, had, um, happened when I came as a PhD, when I arrived in Utrecht as a PhD student the first time. And uh, um, when I did that, uh, I was, uh, um, uh, theoretically speaking, uh, uh, very well versed. I knew all my stuff. I knew all my theories and I was very well prepared. Uh, but the other students I met, and at the time, the Institute of Linguistics was really uh, um, uh, incredible because we were, I think, around 50 PhD students, uh, you know, all doing different things uh, and, uh, you know, spending nights at the bars, uh, uh, you know, discussing uh, all sorts of issues in linguistics. And, uh, and a lot of the students had a very, very different background and very different ideas from the one uh, I had been exposed to. And definitely, especially because I was put in a, in a research group that was focusing on dyslexia and, and language pathologies at the time, I was confronted immediately with, uh, with this idea, which was, uh, uh, for me, was, was never really truly relevant or central, that, uh, that language is a piece of cognition. It's not just a formal system that you can describe very precisely in its grammar and, you know, in its rules of, of interpretation, but it's also something that our minds are able to perform to learn, you know, to process very rapidly, very efficiently, uh, and so on. So that was a very important, uh, um, had a very powerful impact on the way I looked at language and still lasting today. Um, 
The second, uh, second powerful impact, I received it from UCU especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, uh, um, when I was confronted for the first time with the, with the figure, especially uh, um, uh, with the work of the, of the late uh, Wittgenstein, especially the last, um, uh, the last uh, book he published, uh, which was published posthumous after, after his death um, uh, um, uh, in the early 1950s, uh, 1954, I think, the philosophical investigations, which I approached simply because uh, he was saying the exact opposite of what I was thinking. And, uh, um, you know, some of my colleagues, uh, 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 Floris and Jan, especially at UCU, and some students were telling me, but what do you think about Wittgenstein? You know, and I had to say, I have no idea. What do I think? Yeah. I don't know. So very reluctantly, I got into it and I started studying very seriously. Um, as always, it turns out it was a great experience and I learned so much from it. After uh, quite a few years now, a very hard and deep study of this very, very difficult text. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's no easy reading at all. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, you, and there's a big literature around it uh, that you have to... To, to try to figure out and make sense of. And after many years, I'm not convinced at all uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, but, that, but many of, of these ideas have clearly become now part of the picture to me and either in the form of problems of questions or features of the language that uh, I'm realizing now are truly, truly relevant. The sort of the radical interpretation that is often done of these ideas, uh, it's something I, I I wouldn't approve of yet at this point, to be honest, but it's really become a fundamental element for me in, in the way I, I, I look at language. Uh, I find it a very good example of, uh, of what Plato described as, uh, you know, the notion of a transcendence in a, in a dialogic exchange. Uh, when you have a, an exchange of ideas, the, the most ideal uh, uh, outcome is not that you that one wins and the other loses, or you know that uh, that uh, one proves to be better than the other. But the best outcome is that you transcend all of these and you are able to provide a more a more uh, um, overall uh, all-encompassing uh, uh, framework that in fact uh, contemplates and contains uh, both the starting points. And uh, for me, my experience with, uh, with, uh, with Wittgenstein has been of this kind, in the sense yeah. that it's been a very, very hard uh, school, but extremely formative, yeah. extremely formative. And I really owe it to UCU. I owe it to, to some of my colleagues uh, uh, who are uh, great experts uh, in, on the topic. Some of the students who stimulated me, um, I had a, a beautiful reading group for a short while, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, of uh, with uh, with um, with three students uh, um, uh, who almost forced me into reading, uh, you know, the, the very first publication of Wittgenstein, the Tractatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's um, uh, uh, an impossible text to read, but uh, 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 the only reason I read it was because of this uh, of the enthusiasm of these uh, of these students yeah. at UCU. In fact, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. And because uh, you mentioned like some stuff of Wittgenstein, you're still not entirely convinced by other ones. 
You've sort yeah. of incorporated now. Which ones do you have? Oh, oh my God, that's a very <laughs> a very long discussion. I'm not sure that <laughs> you, uh, you know, try try to explain to like an economist who's like yeah 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 no absolutely I mean uh, the uh, maybe the 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 best way to put it is this way that uh, that you know the the thing is this uh, Wittgenstein wrote this uh, this text that is extremely uh, uh, enigmatic and full of uh, of many questions. In the years after after the, 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 the publication of the investigations, a lot of interpretations came out and you know, a lot of philosophers provided different interpretations of this text. I mean, the real original insight of Wittgenstein is basically his idea is to reject very radically the idea that language is a system of reference, is a system, what he calls the Augustinian picture because in effect uh, uh, the um, uh, um, uh, what was his name Oof, forget it I forgot my memory is, uh, is failing me uh, uh, um, uh, lately um, but anyways the, the the idea that we use language to to uh, to refer to to things and uh, it, it comes up with the idea that instead uh, uh, the very foundation of language should be found in the use that we make of it many philosophers have taken this to be uh, um, uh, to be a philosophical point and to be a conclusive theory of language which was not the intention in fact of Wittgenstein himself uh, his idea was rather to problematize philosophy to create a new approach to philosophy that is uh, uh, that rejects some of these uh, uh, of these assumptions and uh, uh, to focus on the actionality of language on the aspect of uh, of language that have more to do with uh, with the action that uh, that we perform with it uh, i think that today there are many i mean in you know in some sort of uh, wittgenstein was writing this at the end of the 40s when the knowledge we have of what language is and how it functions was very different from the one we have today yeah. and today we know that there are many aspects of language that simply cannot be accounted for in this way mm -hmm. For example, we know that the way we learn language uh, spontaneously when we are younger kids uh, and we, you know, we learn it and we acquire it from the environment yeah. is absolutely incompatible with this idea. Yeah. With the Wittgensteinian idea, we don't learn uh, language by feedback. It's not, uh, you know, that we try uh, uh, to imitate the sounds of, uh, of, our, of our environment and uh, we receive positive feedback when we get it right and negative feedback when we get it wrong. We know today that we approach the, the learning of a language, the acquisition of a language by relying on a very rich uh, uh, cognitive structure that is already there. The, our brains are in large part already hardwired for the task of uh, learning a language from okay. the environment. Yeah. So it's not that we approach it as a blank slate. Yeah. So there is a lot of language in our cognition. A language is there. Uh, and in effect, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious if you think about how complex a linguistic system is of any language, in fact, and how good we are at learning languages spontaneously, especially when we, we are born, especially when we are, uh, you know, 
uh, infants. It's something that, uh, that infants are just very good at. We also know, for example, that there are uh, pathologies, specific pathologies that, or developmental disorders that can affect uh, uh, language very dramatically. Uh, we also know that there are uh, traumas in the brain that can have very, very severe impact on, uh, on uh, language skills. And so, yeah. um, 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 so uh, um, the, the picture, uh, the original Wittgensteinian picture cannot be defended in its entirety, uh, but certainly, you know, uh, uh, it is one of the dimensions that should not uh, be forgotten when we try to describe, uh, to describe language. And it is in fact, I believe, uh, only by considering the interaction between the cognitive factors and uh, uh, the more social and external factors that uh, we can try at least to come up with a complete understanding of what meaningful language is. Yeah. Okay. And you also indeed described how, yeah, how your students sort of got you on that path as well, because they were so enthusiastic about it. And in those so, discussions. Oh, can so you hear me still? Yes, yes, yes. So what is the okay. question? So, no, you were also describing earlier about how your, um, how your students basically got you on that path, how they introduced you to... Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, the interaction, especially with some of the philosophy students uh, at the beginning, uh, yeah. they, they knew, you know, they knew these writings, uh, they knew these ideas uh, uh, much better than I did. And definitely, they, they were definitely uh, very important in encouraging me to, 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 to approach uh, those, uh, those teams. Have you taught linguistics in other universities as well? I've taught a little bit, not too much, but I've taught some courses uh, at the UU. Uh, I've taught some courses in Italy, yes, several times. And you then have only linguistic students or also a mix of uh, backgrounds? Oh, that's, uh, that's uh, let me think. I think also for dif from different backgrounds, uh, uh, because, you know, linguistic courses can be part of uh, <laughs> all sorts of different yeah. programs, in fact. <laughs> Yes, yes. No, no. Also, also different students. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, linguistics, I, I don't know, maybe for economics, uh, if it is similar to the situation, but most of the times uh, students approach linguistics at the college level for the very first time. In the sense that in high school, uh, linguistics as a formal topic is almost never discussed. I mean, they do literature, they do, you know, some normative grammar, how to write properly and, you know, uh, some, some stylistics, uh, but they never really do do linguistics. So most of the times, you know, when you, I mean, most of the courses we teach in linguistics are uh, for students who have uh, either never been exposed to linguistics or only very recently, in yeah. fact, which is, you know, it's, it's something that is both negative, but also extremely positive uh, um, uh, sides to it uh, in the sense that, uh, um, uh, uh, and especially to me, I can say, I must say, the interaction with, uh, you know, students that are uh, bright and, uh, you know, they are knowledgeable, but at the same time, uh, uh, quite new to the topic, uh, can be a very powerful, uh, a very powerful uh, fuel for a discussion, for, you know, for intuitions. And also for me as a teacher, um, I have to say, especially when uh, uh, you are someone like me who likes to be uh, 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 very technical on some details, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, having students to bring you back to some of the more foundational questions, the simpler, the simple ones, and, uh, it's very useful. It's a bit of an anchor to, you know, make sure that you don't lose uh, uh, sight of the bigger picture 
even when you get very technical for some yeah. reason or another. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's a little bit different for economics because most people who take it did have some of it in high school already. Mm. Um, but at the same time, because there are also so many students taking an economics class who are really just curious and they're focusing on other things at UCU. Um, you get the good questions because indeed a lot of the stuff that you sort of implicitly assume to be true, they are questioned yeah. by those students and that can be incredibly valuable. Yes. Um, to really bring it down again, like, okay, what, wait, why are we assuming that again? Need to walk, walk. Yes. <laughs> reasoning. Um, so I know that feeling, really exactly, absolutely. That confrontation is really nice, yeah. Mm. Um, now, obviously, you also have a life outside of linguistics. I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I found out when I was uh, preparing for this interview yesterday is that you actually have... Uh, a lot of animation videos out as well. Yes, yes, yes. They're amazing. How, how did you get into thank that? You, really thank impressive. You. I've not been doing a lot of animations lately, to be honest. Uh, um, my hobby for now has switched slightly, not completely, from animations into, into music, especially electronic music. And now I'm, I'm struggling and trying uh, with some good results to combine the two. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, um, I'm really interested in this notion of, uh, of generativity in art. So the idea that, uh, um, um, the idea that, how can I explain this, that you can create a system, uh, some system of, of uh, you know, deterministic mechanism that combine together in a clever way can always give you a, a can produce an always novel and an always original result. Um, uh, some people refer to this uh, this type of way of looking at things as generative art. And yeah. um, I have um, I, I built myself a, a, a modular synthesizer, which is mm -hmm. a, um, a machine that looks a little bit like you know those things in the in the science fiction movies uh, um, in the sixties <laughs> science fiction movies. You know, Star Trek and all of that, and uh, and uh, um, and this synthesizer can be uh, um, can send a signal that is interpreted by the computer and can be used to, for example, create motions, uh, visual motions, or little animations, uh, and uh, and uh, so that's the 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 route I'm taking. I'm trying to 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 create this sort of little multimedia uh, objects uh, comprising yeah. sounds and, uh, and, uh, and images. Because I think one of the videos I watched on your Vimeo account was of Amsterdam and it was sort of like an image of water with the buildings in the background and that was similar it was also a generative yeah. soundtrack next to no, it? No, 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 that was just uh, an animation I did a few years back I think uh, and, it's, yeah. uh, and it's, uh, it's an animation of Rembrandt Park uh, which is a beautiful park uh, in, uh, in the west part of uh, the western part of Amsterdam um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah No, I think, oh, then I, I don't know, I saw that one Or maybe well. it's another one, I don't know, wait so, so, And it was, uh, Turku was mentioned I think as well in the title. I'm oh yeah, no, that's a, that's another one, there, but that's a, that's not an anime that's made with uh, with actual visuals, so with actual yeah. uh, uh, footage. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a much more recent. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's a, I know which one you're mentioning. Uh, I because I was in Turku last year for a conference and I took this uh, 
this footage and then this footage the footage is animated by the sound there's a there's a noise uh, a noise sound source that is uh, uh, um, uh, that goes through a filter that is manipulated by a sequencer mm-hmm. and which and, and which in turn uh, moves uh, the, 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 um, the index of the of the video of the footage so you have this uh, ah, okay. this rhythmic relation between yeah. the, the, the images and the, and the sound yeah because I was indeed wondering where the, the, the music came from because the sounds were yeah very particular. Yes, yes. I have, uh, uh, if anyone is interested, I have uh, uh, a SoundCloud channel. This is the product of the lockdown during the spring. (laughs) Invested some time in that. Uh, I have a SoundCloud called Gaetano Fiorin, very easy. And uh, and a YouTube channel, which I started uh, fairly recently, where you can see all of these in action. Okay, perfect. Mm. I'll link that in the uh, description. Super. Okay. Because um, you've been, if I remember correctly, you were also DJing for an Amsterdam radio channel for a while, right? I'm not DJing. I'm in that. Uh, in that. Uh, so I participate in this uh, radio program, which is mm-hmm. called Music Musica Ribelle, mm-hmm. and it's part of a radio called Radio Salto, and uh, it's um, it's a public radio in Amsterdam that. Uh, uh, now it's undergoing some restructuring, like how you see you, uh, it is a really <laughs> reorganization, uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, a radio uh, that has uh, uh, radio shows in, um, I don't know how many, but many of the languages that are, uh, you know, represented in Amsterdam and communities that are represented in Amsterdam. It also has a TV channel, by the way. Oh, cool. Um, Radio Channel, and we are part of this uh, of, of the Italian group, uh, let's say. So we do this uh, this show, which is really about you know Italian music, uh, 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 both uh, you know all the all the hits and also the new stuff. So it's really like you know a regular uh, um, radio show on uh, on Italian music, and I do it with uh, two friends of mine. One is Sebastiano Gentile, who is is, a, is an Amsterdamer since more than thirty years. So uh, uh, and he's been doing the radio show for a long time. The other one is Stefano Bocconi. And part of what we do is uh, is we also play some live songs. Uh, and uh, and um, uh, my role in that is to play the bass. Oh. I used to play the double bass, but now, to be honest, I got a little tired because it's very heavy to take to the, to the radio. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to the studio, so I'm switching to the electric one, which is uh, which is much lighter to bring around. And uh, we interrupted the show during you know during the lockdown because mm-hmm. it was not possible to go to the to the studio. We did again a live show uh, last Monday, so the show is every first and third Monday evening mm-hmm. uh, from eight to nine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, um, uh, we tried to do one, we went back to the studio. It was a little complicated because the, they, they've only opened one studio. So uh, it was difficult to exchange with the previews and, and the people after us. But we have also actually, we've also tried to um, um, build up a little bit of a, of a, of a simplified settings here, here at home. Uh, mm-hmm. And we should be able to record the show uh, uh, from uh, from here, basically. Oh, nice. So that's what we are trying to do for yeah. the future, you know, in order to have at least two options, and no no matter what uh, what happens, we are what able happens. to to record and, uh, something. Yeah. Is there any Italian musical artist that you would recommend to listeners? 
uh, any Italian musical artist that you would recommend? Oh, this this is a question for uh, for Sebastiano. I wouldn't know to be honest. And the music I'm listening to uh, recently, it's very very weird stuff. It tends to be uh, <laughs> a, a very very peculiar things. Uh, I don't know. Nothing that comes to to the uh, uh, top of my head. I should have prepared for this, but yeah. I will think about it. Uh, yeah. And maybe send you a message or something. That would be cool. Yes. Wanda. Yeah. 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 No. Okay, well, thank you so much for all your time. And thank uh, you, Kim. Thank I you. hope to see you again in person sometime soon. Yes. And uh, yeah, so this was another episode of Campus Chats. Another one should be coming up soon, though timing is unclear at this moment. But uh, have a lovely day, everyone. <laughs>